0: All right, welcome to episode 56 of Seize the Moment Podcast. And today we have a very special guest. It's Kirk Schneider is a licensed psychologist and leading spokesperson for contemporary existential humanistic and existential integrative psychology. He has written a critically acclaimed books such as The Polarized Mind, Why It's Killing Us and What We Can Do About It, The Paradoxical Self, The Spirituality of Awe, and his most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, The The Depolarizing of America, a guidebook for social healing. Welcome, Kirk.
1: Thanks very much, guys.
2: And thank you so much again, obviously, for coming back on. And so the first thing that we're gonna ask you about is kind of the pinnacle of what seems like sort of the crux of the book, which is your work with the Braver Angels Network. So can you tell us a little bit about it, how you became involved with them, and also why it's such an important thing that they're doing at this particular juncture?
1: Sure. I began with uh, Better Angels around 2016, just after the election. And their former name, by the way, was Better Angels, now Braver Angels. And uh, basically, as I understand it, they began soon after the election because of the uh, polarization and divisiveness that was intensifying, you know, around that whole period. And it was inspired by uh, a psychologist named Bill Doherty and uh, a couple of other um, very socially attuned uh, entrepreneurs. Um, One of them is David Lapp. And uh, in any case, it, it basically is a grassroots movement, citizens movement that is uh, devoted to bringing self-identified conservatives called reds and self-identified liberals uh, called blues generally democrats and republicans together for living room style dialogues basically a group a group process and they're very supportive and highly structured dialogues so that they keep people Within uh, guardrails, if you will, that keeps the conversation as as civil and as uh, mindful as, as possible. Mm. So I I was very energized by the the groups and the ideas, and uh, I I had actually developed a uh, dialogue dialogue format that I called the experiential democracy dialogue. <clears throat> a little over a decade ago. I've been working with that uh, quite a bit uh, with various groups. Uh, People of contrasting backgrounds, could be liberal conservative, uh, could differ on particular issues like climate change. Uh, And uh, in some cases, uh, it also involved uh, community activists and police. Uh, in one case, I, I have an example of that on uh, YouTube between a, an African-American activist and a uh, white police officer. And since that time, I've, I've been uh, developing and refining that experiential democracy dialogue, which is one-on-one, as distinct from the Braver Angels dialogue format, which is group group process. Um, and I think the two actually can complement each other well. Um, but I've been refining the experiential democracy dialogue since my, my work with Better, Braver Angels, uh, where I've become a moderator and uh, I have facilitated several of their their group, uh, group processes over the years. In any case, I, I see it as a, an extraordinarily hopeful trend in, in an extraordinarily... Uh, a painful, intense period that we're going through on yeah. so and you, many levels.
2: And can you tell us a little bit about the step-by-step process first of Braver Angels, and then obviously kind of on top of that, your sort of method and how it differentiates from theirs?
1: Sure. Uh, Braver Angels format begins with a uh, you know, brief introduction of people who, it's generally a five-on-five format, Five blues, five reds, and the moderator uh, uh, provides a, a little introduction. Each of the people are introduced, and uh, they're asked, you know, very quickly why, what brought them here, uh, and then the uh, the format uh, goes into uh, the ground rules. The ground rules are, are just key to this whole process and, and I, I found to be key to the Experiential Democracy Dialogue as well because they really set the tone and the intentions of the group. I should say that uh, Braver Angels and Experiential Democracy Dialogue are based on uh, a, a very, uh, what you might call, phenomenological process in, in psychotherapy. Meaning the attempt to understand and learn about the other as intimately as possible. It's not it's not really about changing minds per se, and certainly not about imposing one view on the other. It's much more about curiosity, respect, and openness. And those are three pillars of the Braver Angels process as well. Attempt to come come from the, those places of curiosity, respect. And openness um, to basically just find out about where this person is coming from and to have the, the safety and support to do that. And out of that, to uh, hopefully achieve some kind of common ground. And, and we've often found through the process that some common ground is is found, and that can be a basis then for further dialogue for potential action, social action of some kind. but reeling it back, um, so the first uh, main phase after the ground rules uh, uh, which is uh, which which also uh, caution people about uh, avoiding you know, non-verbal cues like rolling of the eyes and, you know, wincing and that kind of thing. Because the, the non-verbal is just as important as the verbal here. We're talking about an energetic uh, encounter, you know, as well as verbal. So the first phase is uh, what's called the stereotypes phase, where we break up the blues and reds in different rooms. We have two moderators working with respective groups and mm-hmm. basically, uh, you ask uh, that group how they feel they've been stereotyped. You know, so for the Reds, you know, could be, you know, gun-toting uh, uh,
0: conservative,
1: law and order. What's that?
0: Like a conservative, uh, that that sort like of stereotypical.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Restrictive or repressive. I mean, there could could be a whole lot of associations mm-hmm. with the liberals, uh, kind of uh, anything goes mentality. Uh,
2: open borders, yeah.
1: Open borders, open, open everything. Uh, right. Bleeding heart. Mm-hmm. Not much containment of, of uh, social order, etc. So uh, after people go through the stereotypes, uh, how they feel they've been stereotyped then they're asked to identify the false and misleading aspects of those stereotypes. So here's a chance to, to correct the record, you know, to, to again, fill out more of the humanity of the person rather than just the, uh, the label they're identified with. And so, and we're, we're writing on whiteboards as moderators, we're writing down the main points. Uh, we try to whittle them down to you know, like 10 stereotypes and uh, and then uh, several ways that those stereotypes are in off base. And then uh, the third part of that exercise are the kernels of truth to the stereotype. And of course, this is a, a reckoning for a number of people as well. It's not easy to step back and identify ways you may be acting or the party that you identify acts that uh, you find problematic or maybe even repulsive. Um, And so that's also a chance to fill out the humanity and and it kind of humbles the, the party and the person as well, which makes them more accessible. I mean, these are all ways of helping to make people a bit more accessible to each other, in in uh, unpacking where they're coming from, who they are as people, you know, not just as as labels. And so, after identifying these three aspects, the groups come together, and we have a, a group discussion. We first take the the reds or the blues, and we have the whiteboards there, so we've got all the different ways they feel they've been stereotyped and uh, we convey this to the other side and and the ways that uh, they feel the stereotypes have been false and misleading and then the kernels of truth that they see to the stereotypes and so then we give a chance for the groups to to discuss uh, um, you know their their thoughts about that Uh, uh, and to eventually uh, if, there's, if there's enough time it depends on these groups are f- structured in terms of a three hour and a, a six hour, so there are longer and shorter periods for these but if there's enough time this sets the basis for questions uh, from respective sides toward the other side Um, that the questions again need to come from you know a place of curiosity as much as possible and this is the moderator's job to to press people and to to keep them um, coming from that more open place if you will and to, to call them out if you feel like they're they're veering off into gotcha questions or questions with answers in them, that kind of thing. So you can promote, again, a more open and supportive conversation. And there's also a ground rule of not interrupting the other side when they're responding to the question. So giving people time to do that. Um, So there's a questions phase if if there's enough time. Um, And there is uh, also Uh, at the end of the period, a chance to look at what's been discovered, what's been learned about each other. What was your experience of the red or your experience of the blue? Um, Has anything shifted in your sense of reds or blues through this period?
0: And in the sessions that you've been a part of, um, have you noticed any, any changes? Maybe one group was more understanding of the other, uh, or one individual was more understanding of the other?
1: I, yeah, I, I have definitely noticed those kind of changes. Uh, and That's part of the reason I've stayed with these groups for close to three years now. Uh, I, I've been extremely moved. By what I've seen, and, and I don't think that's uh, an isolated experience at all. Many people in these groups have been very touched by uh, seeing just again more of, of the humanity of the other person, more of, of where they're where they're coming from. Uh, that that they're not, you know, con- constrained by uh, a simple category. Or stereotype. Uh, and uh, I guess I, I think more of a sense of empathy toward sure. each other. Um, so I, I think just being able to sit with each other is an enormous step in these days of, uh, you know, almost, uh, well, beyond demonization. I mean, a, a hatred uh, of, of either camp. And we've certainly seen these flare ups
2: and it's very yeah and it's it's okay so and it's very similar to kind of you know um the Egyptian maxim as above so below mm-hmm. so it's sort of very similar and kind of what I took away from that part of your book is it's very similar to therapy it's very similar to sort of the Hegelian dialectic whether we're talking about existential therapy whether we're talking about cognitive behavioral dialectical therapy um, so what's so cool about it is the idea when what we're looking for, I think, from my interpretation of the work here, is that we're looking for a synthesis. And sometimes when cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of misinterpreted, the idea is like, well, we're looking for, um, let's say, rational thought to override our intuitions. So our intuitions are telling us something false, such as I'm a failure, I'm a loser, et cetera. And we're looking for the rational side to sort of override them and remind us you know, how great we are. So that's actually a kind of misconception of CBT. And I think it's a misconception, honestly, of just therapy in general, which is why a lot of people seem to kind of, you know, dislike it to some extent, because their thinking is, is, oh, you just want me to think positively and that's just not real. That's bullshit. I want to stay away from that. And so what's so cool about this being a reflection of individual psychotherapy is that what we're looking for is just like with psychotherapy in the sort of one-on-one sense, we're looking for these sort of little grains of truth in the different sides. So if we're looking at two different people sort of conversing with each other, the beauty is that they find an end to the conflict ideally speaking, they find them into the conflict and understanding that sort of both versions were incorrect to some extent, and then also both versions were correct to some extent, that there's this sort of synthesis. And it's very similar to individual psychotherapy, where it's never the case that an individual's intuitions are sort of totally flawed, because to some extent, I am a loser and I am a failure. I mean, these are just facts of life. But on the other end, right, sort of the more rational part that tries to convince me otherwise is also partially right, where I'm also a success and I've also done things that I can say that I'm proud of. And so what's so cool about that is that again as above so below it's a very sort of reflective process in terms of our own sort of individual psyches. like we can look at it intersubjectively and we can look at intrasubjectively and intrapersonally, and see that really sort of the harmony comes within an acknowledgement of the truth within either side or within both sides
1: I, I think that's that's dead on uh i also think it's it's about coming to to terms with the other in oneself because generally if we're getting activated by a contrasting side or person um there's something in ourselves that is is not you know well integrated if you will and i I don't want to speak in overly rosy or idealistic terms but uh but i do think these kinds of uh, conflict mediation approaches that tend to be more intimate um, do have that effect of helping people to recognize more of their own wholeness. And I think that's what we were talking about. When, when you say synthesis, mm-hmm. I think of wholeness, uh, paradoxical wholeness, because I have questions about whether anyone ever achieves some kind of seamless unity or whole in terms of everyday living. But I do think as human beings we can go much further in uh, coexisting with many parts of ourselves, contrasting and even contradictory aspects of ourselves. And and that's part of the richness of life and and the the fullness of life and um, that It it also is is a hedge against uh, civil discord and uh, uh, violence in many ways. Because in many ways, violence is about trying to get rid of that thing that is so alien in your own being and in the other. And if you can get to a place where it's not so much about getting rid of it, it's more about trying to explore it, uh, um, seeing what, uh, what aspects of it make sense for you and your life. Uh, that's a very different approach, and uh, it feels like it's an approach that allows for more e- evolving of people. You know, rather than uh, us, them, you know, black, white kind of uh, dualities, po- polarities. Yeah. Yeah, what's... So this is within and without, Yeah, you
0: know. Yeah. Um, yeah, even though there's an explicit difference between yes, no, black, white, there's an implicit sort of unity. One relies on the other for its existence in order to exist at all. Mm-hmm um and recognizing that unity helps you to kind of take that that zoomed out kind of look at everything and be able to see multiple sides yeah
1: well yeah in a sense it is saying that we we all have pieces of the truth you know Mm -hmm. whatever that is i mean i'd rather not put it in in a capital t Mm. but we Seems to me that a vital life is connected with uh, a life that can, uh, you know, that can expand with within the the givens of one's uh, social, cultural, familial, cosmic situation, if you will. Uh, I, I don't know if this is going too far off <laughs> philosophically. No, we- no. I,
0: yeah. Actually, um, what's fascinating about the the structure of yeah. the way that these dialogues take place, it's interesting. It, it progressively takes an individual and, mm, for example, phase one, uh, the, the visualization of engaging in a dialogue with one's partner.
1: Yes.
0: Well, at least from my interpretation, if I were to go through that process and I, I sort of did while, while reading, um, I noticed there were things I, I've learned what it is that I thought of the other, what it is that my perspective of them was. It's not something that generally I take the time to think about. Uh, sometimes I just get caught up in the automaticity of everything. Um, yeah. you're just there now in the discussion or the, the yeah, argument or the back and yeah, forth. Yeah. yeah. yeah but Something like that, especially as a starter, is, is already fascinating. I can see how it already starts to kind of open you up to be able to look at how it is that you yourself think. And that's just phase one.
1: Yeah, oh, no, I appreciate that. And now we're, we're getting to the experiential democracy dialogue yeah. format, which uh, I, th- I think is, is useful as, as a, uh, a compliment to the Braver Angels uh, format. Um, So yeah, the experiential democracy dialogue, again, time permitting, can involve six phases. And the first phase is the visualization phase, as as you were saying. Um, I've seen the experiential democracy dialogue as a way of going even deeper than than much of the the group process of braver angels although i i don't want to downplay that in any sense that that has its place and has its place for many people mm-hmm. there are other people who uh, or even some of the same people who are ready and willing to to go even deeper into deep into one-on-one exploration so Uh, I I think I'm moving even closer to a kind of therapeutic um, experience uh, with the with the experiential democracy dialogue Uh, and beginning with the visualization as a kind of priming of people to help them to become more centered in themselves so uh, I'm encouraging people to just uh, picture what it might be like to sit with that other person for a few moments. You know, well first you have your issue, whatever it is, you know, yep. immigration or what have you. And so what what might it be like to uh, discuss the, the issue of, well we, we could say racism, I mean that's obviously an issue that's very, very front and center right now. Uh, to discuss the, the problem of, of race racism in our society with that person? Uh, what kind of feelings or thoughts come up? Even body sensations as I picture myself sitting with that person discussing this issue. Um, and then second, am I able to find a place where I can see that person beyond the policy that they're representing, or or the party that they're representing, um, am I able to even to even glimpse maybe the humanness of this person, and not just that they're a red or a blue or what have you? And I think that's very helpful. And then in, in then going to the next step of talking about each other's backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the second phase of the model. Uh, Describing in just a few minutes what it was like growing up in terms of this particular issue, let's say racism. So what was it like in your family? How how were other races treated in your family system? Um, What what was that like for you? Uh, And then how so uh given that uh on both sides what what are we really seeing here it seems to me we're we're seeing much more of the context of where people are coming from because too often dialogues of this kind just begin with the policy issue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Or in the case of Braver Angels, it's beginning with the stereotype exercise. Um, I guess what what I'm pressing for is providing a little bit more context before we we jump into more of that uh, verbal and kind of analytical mode if you will yeah
0: it uh it humanizes the other person it it takes away that tribal aspect of as you said earlier of us versus them or ascribing a sort of identity onto the person and immediately judging them based on their identity or their group identity Mm -hmm. by going through this uh sorry Go go ahead
1: Yeah. yeah and 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 it and it can really build empathy because often what we find out when we hear about people's background is that they've been through some kind of trauma that's related to their their concern or their their leaning let's say mm-hmm. ideologically or their family has been through some kind of trauma or challenges that relate to their particular, you know, identification with a stance, uh, or in some cases, it's 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 a uh, transmitted trauma over generations, or it's experienced that way. So that gives the respective parties a little bit more sense of, of where this person's coming from as a person. And then the third phase is the, taking a stance, describing the stance. Let's say how you feel about the way racism is being handled, uh, let's say, by the government right now, uh, or by the police, or by the protesters, whatever particular issue the two people decide on. And and so you you give that person, again, uh, a lot of room, I mean, five minutes, but that can that can be quite a period of time uh, to describe as mindfully and heartfully how they view that particular issue. And then the partner is asked to reflect back what they heard from that original speaker. And again, not just intellectually, but as much as possible what they heard and they sensed and they felt you know, with their, their whole, sort of whole body experience of where that other person is coming from. The attempt is to try to bring the other party as much as possible into the shoes of the other and thereby into their, their, their own shoes that are ill-fitting
2: <laughs>
1: you know, in a sense. All those places that are getting activated in, in themselves too. Uh, to To try to get a fuller sense of of what these fears and these uh, these hard differences are about, and of course you switch roles so uh, after the uh, describing a stance, then we go into the stereotypes phase and i've i 've borrowed this from braver angels um, inviting the respective parties, the one-on-one, to uh, identify stereotypes that they feel have have been uh, imposed on their position, then uh, correcting false and misleading aspects of those stereotypes, and then identifying kernels of truth to those stereotypes. And of course, both parties have the chance to do that. And then we move into... Um, I believe it's the fifth phase, which is the questions phase. And again, I'm drawing from Braver Angels here as well, where each party gets a chance to ask one another a uh, a question that comes from a mindful and curi- curious place. Honestly, want, wanting to know. You know more about why is it that you take that position of supporting the police in these instances, or supporting the activists in this instances, in this instance, or uh, uh, or what just or what is your feeling? About how this person or this group has handled such and such a situation. So these are relatively neutral questions, but I don't want to sound too intellectualized about it. Again, they're they're honestly searching and and inquiring questions.
2: And Kirk, do you have any sort of particularly fond memories about sort of those moments where stereotypes are not necessarily, I guess, challenged, but when they're examined and sort of what it's like for the other side when they get to kind of see for themselves that the stereotypes are not necessarily true?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I do, actually. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and I have one of these anecdotes in my book mm-hmm. uh, where I talk about... Uh, the time where I, I was with a group of of people, some of whom were from my hometown mm-hmm. in the Midwest, and uh, uh, we came from very different neighborhoods mm-hmm. in the city. And um, I think at first we we had a kind of natural, you know, maybe suspicion or. Sense of difference about each other um, but but through the the group exercise uh, exercises uh, and getting to know one another more, uh, that was gradually melting and and by the end after the end of of this was a graver angel session, uh, actually the three of us sort of naturally got together. Mm-hmm. And we started talking just just drawing with one another about about our backgrounds. We were all about the same age, you know, early '60s, and we're we're starting to talk about, you know, our our shared experience of, of the uh, in this case the, the Cleveland Browns, <laughs> the football team, and our, our experience as kids, uh, you know, walking with our, our, our dads or uncles or whatever families uh, down to the stadium and, and you know smelling the hot dogs and, and the, the peanuts <laughs> and the and hearing the transistors and going and, and this was a time when the team was was doing you know really fantastic and, uh, and the sense of excitement as kids and we really we, we shared that on you know a whole body levels of, of not just the three of us but uh but the whole town and and two of us were were white one was black so we were also very much relating to how you know it's it's like the whole city comes together one of the rare moments where where the, the rainbow of colors uh comes together uh in this ritual that is you know on the on the face of it about a football game, you know which you could see as pretty you know super, superfluous in, in a number of ways, but I think at the deeper level it it really was the sense of connection with a community that we otherwise never would have connected with and mixed with, and that was our sense in the stadium as well. And, and then there were some other sort of touch points, uh, like uh, uh television show host or something that we we all identified with as kids. And and by the end of that, maybe 20 minutes uh, conversation, I, I know I felt much more of a family feeling about these guys and I, I think it was shared, you know, we were all in pretty good humor after and, Actually, the ideologies pretty much dropped away. I mean, that was dramatic to me. And there were dramatic differences in ideology in in that particular circle of the three of us. Uh, One in particular being significantly more conservative than the others.
2: Was that ever explored?
1: The ideology part?
2: Yeah. Yeah, the ideology part.
1: Well, it it came up during the uh, the Braver Angels session, so mm-hmm. there was this unpacking, you know, through the questions and through the stereotype exercise, mm-hmm. um, getting more of a sense of where where people were coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, not not after that uh, very spontaneous uh, meeting of the three of us, sort of huddled together mm-hmm. afterward. Yeah, um, but that would be interesting and. And I I think that that is a dramatic example of the kind of thing that we see on all kinds of scales uh, during and and following those meetings. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the one-on-ones I I find uh, often intensify that sense of relating to each other uh, much beyond, a particular policy issue that, that is presented, you know, or that is begun with. Uh, yeah, that's quite striking. And I, I just should mention that there have been surveys uh, by Braver Angels, they have it on their website, of people who've been through these groups and, you know, how they've impacted them. And they've had very high numbers, uh, favorable ratings, of 79, 80 percent. Oh, wow who have talked about uh, how significant uh, these meetings have been in terms of, of seeing the other's humanity mm-hmm. and feeling a, a lot less uh, triggered by, by the label of the other mm-hmm. after going through these groups. That seems to be the biggest shift in these uh, after group surveys. Um, the sense that I, I can sit with this person and he's another you know, man or woman who's got issues like I do and who's, who's struggling with certain things and yeah, I could see more of how they've come to that place even though I still may strongly disagree with where they've landed but that shift in energy that shift in capacity to be present to otherness, I think is enormous. And and I will just tie that in briefly to where I believe is the the next step or a major step of our democratic system, democratic republic system, uh, which is to move beyond, you know, the ability to behave in certain ways. We we do have more freedoms, relatively speaking, to behave, to uh, express ourselves in certain ways, Um, even if we come from different creeds, races, you know, backgrounds, etc. But where we're we're really challenged now, and I I think it's been just almost an organic process, it it would almost inevitably happen, we're really challenged person-to-person um, more at the psychological or psychospiritual level of uh, enabling a more coexisting um, democratic uh, how would I put it, uh, I think, vital way of interacting with each other. Uh, so we're moving from kind of outward or external aspects of this massive experiment and democratic principles to now internal. What is the energetic level of experience between person of color, white person, et cetera? What's the energetic level of somebody who holds really fast to individual freedom, let's say, as distinct from somebody who identifies more with the social contract in society? Um, And does that energetic level prevent people from seeing a bigger picture? And from working with, again, nuggets of truth, perhaps, in respective points of view. Yeah, it's really delicate. And it's really intensive work. But I don't see a way around it if we're going to save ourselves as a species. Because I think if that stuff is blocked off, um, you know, we'll we'll in some sense be scrambling around changing the deck chairs on the titanic you know or making the window dressing look better Mm -hmm. you got all this stuff rolling underneath that is not dealt with
0: that's right and that's why for example um one of one of my big takeaways uh out of out of all the phases was phase three turns taking a stance what's what's great about that one in particular is i like that you you basically steel man another person's view. You, you take what their view is, you explain it as best to your ability as you can.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And from their, um, listening to you trying to explain their perspective, all of a sudden, what, what happens is a lot of people, uh, their, their guard kind of goes down. They mm-hmm. feel more understood, uh, because prior to that moment, uh, it was, Again, back to me versus them, uh, the you know tribal thinking, I'm left, you're right, all of that. Um, but by being able to say, no, 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 I understand what your viewpoint is. Um, you're trying to say this, this, and this. All of a sudden there's, oh, okay, actually I feel understood now. Mm-hmm. Maybe now I'm more willing to listen to what your perspective is. And then we can mm-hmm. sort of find some sort of common ground there. Um, yes. Yeah.
1: And and you, you give the person a lot more room to unpack the context for where they're coming from. So now all I see why now, or I feel I see more now why you're so identified with being able to defend yourself, let's say, in your home. You've seen some, some really horrible things or or you've been attacked or Um, you know, you you just have more of a sense of what's happened personally that perhaps you can relate to. Uh, I I think I can't overemphasize the importance of structure with, with these dialogues. And that's something that has struck me over the years of developing experiential democracy dialogue I think I was not as uh, attuned to how important that sense of safety and structure in these encounters need to be in order for them to happen. And I, I think we we've learned some harsh lessons from the '60s even about yeah. this. You know, when some, there there were groups, for example, where the, I think the Black Panthers were brought in to Esalen for, oh, wow, you know, of whites and blacks.
2: Mm-hmm. What was that like?
1: Well, I've just seen films of it and mm-hmm. I've heard some about it, but it quick, very quickly devolved mm-hmm. into a great deal of animus, um, and and it was a very raw time. I mean, that's something we have to consider too, and it is a raw time now too. Yeah, um, uh, but without there wasn't there really weren't the ground rules of how this thing can proceed. And so I, I, I've really been struck about how quickly these kinds of conflicts can devolve into food fights.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Extremely quickly. It's like fire and it's like flamethrowing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even language, certain word that's a trigger word for a Republican or a trigger word for a Democrat, yeah. you know, to be cognizant of that is, is very important. So. Um, and and to nip it in the bud, you know, before the vicious cycle just takes off, spins off into uncontrollable uh, territory.
0: And and Kirk, so uh, actually, uh, uh, what's been your experience in trying to get, mm, how should I put this? Um, I suppose people who are involved like in in politics, let's say, um, to explore this sort of dialogue. Um, Because this would be so vital if members of uh, Congress, for instance, especially in times like now, if they would get together like this and, and maybe have a structured approach to their their dialogues
2: right and wait can i just add on to that question yeah sure please. so also Kurt, because you mentioned sort of the all for life and that's what i was thinking when you mentioned this mm-hmm. so i'm assuming yeah your answer has to do with this and then so my sort of secondary to alan's first question is going to be how does this sort of sense of offer for life right kind of kind of factor into political dialogue between obviously two people at the opposite end or at the opposite ends of the spectrum
1: yeah well i do see the the move toward a more experiential democracy and a, a more exploratory orientation on the parts of people as uh, drawing from a greater ability to uh, to recognize the awesomeness of life and and the passing nature of life and, and the preciousness of life um, to the point of uh, orienting our lives more around exploration and discovery, which can lead to all kinds of exciting things like creativity and innovation, etc. But at the social level, um, I do think that it, uh, the, the more we can, we can highlight that aspect of our founding and I do think that that sense of awe or humility and wonder, sense of adventure toward living, is implicit in the founding of our country. Uh, and, and not saying that it just came from a bunch of old white men. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there are many, many strains, native, indigenous, multicultural, that fuel that that sense of, uh, well, wanting to make this life uh, much more vital. They talk about achieving happiness, you know, Mm -hmm. as as being a a right. Um, I I think so much of it really, has to do with uh, feeling freer both internally and externally Uh, to live in in a more uh, full and and dynamic way along with responsibility and that's where our republic comes in. We may need to have guardrails, we need to have um, good leadership that helps helps us uh, you know, facilitate that kind of spirit of humility and wonder toward life and discovery. Um, so, so that's that's one piece that, that I feel yeah, is, is very important as a base, and I try to highlight that in the book uh, as we move into these, these dialogues. But I, I want to get the other Question that you had, uh, I think Leon was that right? The,
2: the, the one about the offer life, or was it Alan the I, first one?
1: Maybe it was yeah the first one I think.
2: Okay. Oh, the first
0: one. Oh, okay, Alan, it's okay. <laughs>
1: Sorry, Alan.
0: What was the what first? Was it? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, the question was what's what's been your experience in trying to get. Um, uh, people like politicians or, or oh, right. professional settings, um, for them to approach their dialogues in a sort of structured manner, uh, the way that you've developed?
1: Well, first of all, I'm making a very concerted attempt in this book, uh, The Depolarizing of America, to give away the, the tools and resources that I've, I've been privileged to witness in these Braver Angels groups, in the Experiential Democracy Dialogues, facilitating them, et cetera. Really want to give these away to everyday people as well as professionals to to, to expand this movement, this dialogue movement. I I would love to see it become more of a mass movement in our culture. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm applying it to uh, friends, neighbors, family members who are willing to, again, accept the ground rules of the approach, the format, and, and try these out one-on-one with all the caveats that I also bring up in the book about, you know, your readiness and ability and, and willingness to go into these kind of uh, fairly intimate situations. But I think there are more and more people who are ready and willing to do that.
0: You know, uh, It does seem to the, be the,
1: uh, the desperation. It, the uh, tor- so anyway, what one of the applications is uh, with legislators, uh, with diplomats, and I I have made a number of attempts uh, with legislators in the past to uh, to try just to try out uh, some of these uh, phases and. Uh, it's been very tough, yeah. very tough making headway. But this was a number of years ago. I think we may be at some kind of inflection point where mm. uh, even, even legislators would be willing to take more of a risk to, to experiment with these kinds of dialogues. Um, it Seems to me there is no more relevant time than to do that. And Braver Angels is doing some experimenting with that too, as I understand it. Yeah.
2: Uh,
1: but yes, I I would like to uh, be a part of facilitating such dialogues. You know, uh, yeah. if, if that moment comes up.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's it's a.
1: Funny.
0: Yeah, th- I think there's a craving for for that kind of dialogue. Um, you, you you could make an argument. Um, before podcasting was a sort of a mainstream phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, I think we used to think that people didn't have uh, much of an attention span mm-hmm. in terms of uh, marketing, right? Uh, yeah. People could only take things in sound bites. Nobody wants to listen to an hour long conversation, a two hour, three hour, so on. But yeah. it's been proven uh, by at least some of these podcasts that have become popular um, that people do have way more of an attention span than we think. They do crave uh, nuance. They actually are able to listen to uh, an hour, two, three. Um, even, even certain events have become popular. Uh, like uh, This is just an example that comes to mind of uh, let's say Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris having mm-hmm. a dialogue on stage. And uh, it, it, was, it was structured to a degree in the sense that they would do something called steel manning each other's arguments in order to mm-hmm. feel that they, they said what the other's viewpoint is mm-hmm. in order to have a more complete dialogue and integrate both perspectives at the end of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, there, there's, there's something going on for sure that's definitely building as we speak. So that's, that's definitely something to look at.
1: Yeah well, I, I appreciate that and I also think that the pandemic and the recent racial upheaval is is promoting that uh that willingness to to engage in in more at least more substantive kinds of uh uh dialogues or uh, activities you know via electronic media um and and also because we're we're kind of forced right. <laughs> to That's true. Do that. <laughs> with the video video platform. Right. Um, Yeah, so that's a hopeful thread. And actually, if I might just take a moment here to uh, mention that I am going to be uh, presenting uh, with with my colleague, uh, Bob Edelstein, uh, a demonstration of the experiential democracy dialogue Mm -hmm. between him and actually a person from Braver Angels that I'll be facilitating, um, which I, I believe will be focused on uh, the issue of racism.
2: Where, where can we find that?
1: And that's it's happening July 11th, and it's um, it's a, available at uh, ehinstitute.org, mm-hmm. co-sponsored by our Existential Humanistic Institute and his uh, institute. Uh, Existential Humanistic Institute Northwest. Um, So yeah, ehinstitute.org has a link to it. Um, And and it's gonna be a three hour webinar. So after the demonstration, we'll have time for discussion with the audience. And then we're going to uh, invite people to break out into pairs and go through the phases. And this is, this is mainly for practitioners, I should say, for therapists or counselors, people who work in mediation settings, because it's also about helping these folks to come to greater terms with their own issues of otherness you know, within themselves and with their clients and possibly in the community, if they're yeah. willing to, to facilitate these kind of dialogues in, in the larger community. It's a way of moving beyond the office, so to speak, the consulting room.
2: Yeah, awesome.
1: In more communal uh, settings. So.
2: And then so Kirk, since we talked about sort of like, you know, this sort of being a very important time in our history, and obviously it's something that you mentioned not only in your book, but also in the article you recently wrote from, uh, or on Psychology Today about sort of the crisis, you know, the, the COVID crisis and the uh, sort of, I, I guess, I don't know, whatever age, but how pretty much the sort of the existential antidote to the kind of COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to ask, first I want to read a quote from you, and then I want to ask you a question. So in regard to Ernest Becker, who obviously sort of the notable psychologist who wrote the book, The Denial of Death, you wrote. So this was speaking of an interview that he did with psychology today. So you wrote, Becker paused for a moment, gathered his thoughts, and replied with one of the most spellbounding spellbinding, deathbed reflections I have ever heard. He wrote, quote, the most important thing to know is that beyond the absurdity of one's life, beyond the apparent injustice of things, beyond the human viewpoint, there is the fact of the tremendous creative energies of the cosmos, which are using us for some purpose we don't know. And to be used for divine purposes, however we may be misused, is the thing I think consoles. So what's wonderful about this quote is that I think that you're talking about it on so many different levels. But my question to you is going to be, do you think in terms of sort of braver angels, um, hopefully even the work that we're doing here, obviously with the experimental or experiential democracy dialogue so do we feel like in some way that the sort of universe right in this sort of kind of polarized state that we're in at just kind of i guess somewhat horrible and terrifying juncture that in some way the energies are sort of bringing us together to take us to this point where now we have to kind of face the things that we've been doing to one another and kind of have a reckoning with what we expect and what we want for the future
1: yeah first of all i'm really moved by by becker's uh, deathbed reflection mm-hmm. And I, I find it to be so so inspiring on, on so many levels, uh, because it it really is about coming from a place of discovery and curiosity, and and uh, working with fears, the sense of otherness. Um, but uh, may, maybe you could you rephrase the question too of how how that particular quote ties into your your focus on society or, or, or social direction.
2: Yeah, so mm-hmm. the way I was sort of interpreting it as that when we're talking about the sort of, um, let's see, so there is the fact of the tremendous creative energies of the cosmos, which are using us for some purpose. I was wondering if in your sort of understanding of that, right, when we talk about sort of like in terms of existentialists or kind of Stoic terms, when we're talking about reframing, right, and seeing the situation and the sort of silver lining of it and seeing kind of what is it that we can do to, for, well, to it and sort of what is it that we can take away from it. And I was wondering if in your understanding of Becker, what he was saying is that sometimes sort of life takes us to this point where the universe is sort of calling on us, like Viktor Frankl would have said. It's sort of calling on us to create some sort of meaning. And this is a sort of time for all of us collectively, you know, societally to actually create that meaning for one another and for ourselves.
1: Yeah, I I do. I certainly hope that that is the case. Um, Paul Tillich had a term, it's actually a, a Greek term. It's called kairos, k-a-i-r-o- s. And as I understand it, that means opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that every now and then in epochs of history, there is there seems to be a convergence of circumstances on the ground and people's people's mentality that allow for some kind of profound shift Mm -hmm. in the direction of of history. Now, I'm not sure what Becker meant by divine. You know, I I have some questions about what he really means by that. My, My sense is he's talking about the great beyond. He certainly doesn't have a dogmatic view of the divine. I know that. Um, He's he's talking about that which is just much greater than us that, uh, you know, is opening up an opportunity for a greater realization about how, how we're willing to live this life. Um, Are we being used for, you know, directly used for purposes we don't know? It's possible. I'm not sure that that's so important as the question or the issue that uh, we are being called to uh, substantively confront our ways of living right now, and we, I, I feel we're at a very critical juncture, you know, socially and certainly in my professional psychology too. I, I think that uh, psychology is, is ripe for some major shifts in contributing to the social good, um, in, in orienting ourselves that way, and uh, I think we got to take it very seriously. Um, All right,
2: so I don't it's know if
1: that, you know, kind of resonates to your your question.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the way I kind of my interpretation of what he was saying, I, I mean, I'm not really sure, obviously, what his spiritual beliefs were but right. my understanding is the same as it's a Frankel. So obviously, kind of Frankel thought that there was sort of universal, you know, kind of cosmic meaning. But in his understanding, you know, man was never really able to know what that is. So he had this sort of secondary meaning where right. he said that sort of the situation for us sort of in our reason kind of calls for us to respond to it in a particular way. So the way I kind of interpreted it, which is sort of the way I interpret your work as well, Kirk, is that what we're saying is that society as a whole is calling to us to help it it's like sort of a calling to us to help ourselves in some way
1: yes yes and we have a freedom to respond to that call mm-hmm. and that's that's Frankl's big point as well as Becker and, and other existentialists right is to really tap into our creative ability to respond at a a very difficult moment. Um, I think we're more conscious of that capacity to respond right now also. That's partly why you're seeing such upheaval in the streets. Less complacency, less robotics, you know, more, uh, more really grappling with how are we going to move forward here? Right. We certainly don't want to keep living under the same uh, structures that we have been. Something profound is not working, mm-hmm. and it, it's got to be shifted. Otherwise, uh, we're 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 drowning. We're down spiraling. Into, uh, ...into lives that, that in many cases may not be worth living. Yeah.
2: And so speaking about the shift in psychology, so a user on Twitter, David Hughes, asked, who's a big fan of your work, he's a listener to the show. He actually asked me to ask you about your notion of the psychology general. And sort of like we have a surgery general in the country, so a psychology general, obviously, is something you wrote about in Scientific American and the necessity of that. Can you tell us about what that would look like if we were to have one as a country?
1: Yeah, I think it's high time that uh, psychology was was genuinely placed on a par with with medicine Mm -hmm. in terms of the health of our country. And we we have really been uh, dominated by uh, a kind of uh, medical model for for health, for healthcare for a very long time. And just the idea that we have a, a surgeon general you know, who's overseeing psychological offices and aspects Mm -hmm. and we tend to have psychiatrists or physicians who are overseeing other government agencies such as SAMCHA, is is positive in many ways and certainly I, I have a lot of admiration for what physicians do and what they're doing now absolute sure in this pandemic. Um, But I just think that we have such a mental health crisis in the country, Uh, the level of depression, anxiety, addictions, uh, bigotry, hate crimes, uh, you know, rampage killings, uh, sociopathy, you know, corruption. Uh, that we're we're really missing psychological interventions. We're, we're missing. Uh, I think people who have have spent their lives uh, dedicated to uh, helping people to uh, develop their own resources. To to live more fully uh, and and more healthfully uh, as distinct from, you know, over-reliance on medication, for example. uh, Or over-reliance on kind of quick quick methods, quick fixes to change, change behaviors. I, I just feel it's high time that we had somebody who comes from a holistic integrative background, who can work in coordination with medical people, but who who devotes full-time to the psychological or I should say psychosocial aspects of of our our troubles. and uh, I think this is especially, this is a major, major problem at the public health level in particular. I just don't think we, we've done enough and our paradigms allow enough to optimally uh, heal, to optimally support people who have very significant relational deficits Uh, emotional uh, deprivations of all kind. We're just not getting to those levels. And and I think we need more funding and and more authority for those basically psychological aspects that could go such a long way, it seems to me, in uh, helping much more of the populace to heal, or to to even get to to a more stable uh, ground on which to live, yeah. but but beyond that, uh, to uh, open people to uh, possibilities of, of living uh, much more energized existences, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I just. One one example could be the, the place for longer term relational emotionally corrective therapy sure. for many more people. Yeah. You know, to, to counter the extreme deprivation they've had yeah. in relationships for a lot of reasons, social, cultural, political, familial, on and on. Right. And so these are substantive ways that we can really help turn the society around.
2: Absolutely. And then, so is that like part of why you chose to run for the presidency of the American Psychological Association? Okay. So can you tell us a little, okay. Can you tell us a little bit about that? How's your campaign been going?
1: Well, first of all, it came out of the blue. uh, I I was a bit shocked by it, but, uh, but I decided, uh, along with other colleagues, that it it really was a very important chance to highlight what a more uh, holistic, existentially oriented, uh, integrative paradigm in psychology could offer. And so at the very least, it helps us to bring out some of these, uh, these deeper perspectives, if you will, to the, the larger profession that I believe is ready for some major transformations as, as we realize uh, that our current system of doing things is not enough. That yeah. we need more, much more focus, intensive focus on on healing lives, you know, on on, on going beyond behavior, cognition to the feeling, to the emotional level and to um, the relational level, which both have been shown to be very powerful aspects of effective psychotherapy, Mm -hmm. the most powerful in terms of all the other um, techniques that are focused on,
2: and when is the election date?
1: Uh, September fifteenth. Awesome, it's, mm. it's around the corner.
2: Yeah, wow. So, so. I,
1: but I do want to emphasize that this is an integrative perspective. I, I'm not, you know, shunting aside mm-hmm. uh, cognitive behavioral work or, uh, you know, work with people's physiology mm-hmm. and medical situations. These are all very, very important terms of holistic healing. It's just that they're not the be-all and end-all. And that's where I think we've gotten hung up mm-hmm. for so many years.
2: Yeah,
1: We haven't had a, a you know, let would say a purely, <laughs> more purely humanistic uh, uh, president of the APA since Maslow.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Although Frank Farley I think moved quite a bit in that direction. But that's been 20 Almost uh, 30 years now as well. Mm -hmm.
2: And so we'll definitely be rooting for you, Kirk. We're like really happy for you. And we think this would be an awesome thing for obviously the APA and just psychology as a whole.
1: Thanks very much.
2: You're welcome. And then, so Alan, before we wrap up, any final questions?
0: Oh, yes. Um, So if we wanted to follow you and to also buy your new book, uh, how could we do that?
1: thanks yeah the the new book is called the depolarizing of america mm-hmm. a guidebook for social healing and uh, it's available on uh, amazon apple uh, you know Barnes and noble all, all the electronic outlets mm-hmm. and it's from university professors press so you could purchase it there as well um, it's on kindle uh Pretty readily available. Yeah. And, where can,
2: <laughs> and where can we find you on social media?
1: So, uh, well, people can go to my website, mm-hmm. which is perkjschneider.com, and there's a place for contact there. Mm-hmm. They want to contact me uh, directly. Uh, and there there's an awful lot of, uh, um, you know, information about... Uh, my articles, perspectives uh, about the various books you know that I've written, mm-hmm. and and about uh, my APA presidency uh, uh, campaign as mm-hmm. well.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. Thank this you, was Chris. such an enlightening conversation.
1: Well, it's great to talk to both of you again. And. I have you very straight now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: awesome. Now so, <laughs> yeah. And maybe we'll do another show, obviously, hopefully after you win the candidacy.
1: I'd enjoy that a lot.
2: Awesome. Thank away. you again.
0: Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Bye. Keep going. <laughs> All right, guys. That was great. Yeah. Great so, night, huh? Yeah, yeah. Such yeah. a good job. <laughs> All right. Uh, guys, thanks again for watching. If you want to find out, uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, or Instagram, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast. And on Twitter, we're at Seize underscore podcast. And like, subscribe. Hit the
2: bell hit on the YouTube. Bell. Yep. And then you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at o 4 com, And we are under the STM Podcast section.
0: And thanks again for watching. See you next time.